The US is in a very strong position. The UK is a disaster. The situation here in the UK is a shit show. The economy's terrible. This whole Brexit just destroyed the economy here. You turn the news on and see what's going on here. It's a disaster, this country. I'm Jewish and I grew up in Canada. Never experienced anti-Semitism my whole life. Lived in Israel, spent loads of time in the States. The UK used to be like that, but today Europe is being taken over now. You have to hide your religion, not just Jewish, but with Christian and it's ridiculous. Biden's just a joke. If Trump was in there right now, it would be already World War III. America can't just sit back and keep taking this barrage of fire in the Middle East right now. And the Sinai Peninsula is like 90% vacant since Israel gave it back. Why doesn't Egypt give Palestinians part of that and the world will finance it? We're diving right in, Ron. We're diving right in. This is the best type of conversation, man. This is how I love doing this show is just right into a flow of a conversation. But like we were saying offline, I mean, markets are interesting. I made a comment to you about, I think, the time of this recording in December, December 5th, 2023, Bitcoin's up over 100%. Uh, we're starting to see billions of dollars flood into crypto the last three to four months. I think we're going to see a correction based on, uh, one, no one knows. So now this is obviously financial tax legal advice. No one knows at the end of the day. But I think the ETF news, I think the macro level economics uh, in terms of like war, in terms of national debt, global debt is interesting. I think that you do make a phenomenal point when we were, again, chatting there offline. People like me and my generation, people in their really 40s or younger. But even now, I mean, shoot, dudes, your age, right? And in, in your late 40s. My age, you owned a home. You had to buy a home. It was, you know, your wife said, I don't feel secure unless we are living in a home that we own. And then, you know, I sit back and I look at some of my friends, you know, I've been in a home now for 15 years. I bought it, you know, top of the market, put money into it, renovated it. It's worth today, 15 years later, less than what I invested and paid in it, you know, and that equity, you know, I've got like 50, 60%, you know, equity in the house. I could have put that in the market. Like you said, just bought Apple, Google, Facebook, whatever, Microsoft, Exxon, you name it, all blue chip, large caps and zero risk, you know, liquid stocks. And I would have tripled, quadrupled my money over the same 15 years, probably even more than quadrupled with Microsoft and Apple and Google. And, you know, I would have paid rent probably the same what I was paying a mortgage. Now, you know, with new interest rates, like my my neighbors pay half of what I'm paying for my mortgage in rent. It's ridiculous. They live in the same, both houses next to me. I live in one of these brownstones like you have in, you know, in New York, like you see, or in uh, Brooklyn. And, you know, both sides of my, of, of, on me, on, you know, I'm in the middle and both sides are, are, they're not owner occupied, they rent and their rent is like expensive rent. But, you know, with interest rate changes, you know, here in London, people are paying anywhere from, you know, six and a half now to, to 9%, depending on where you fall in the spectrum. You know, that's ridiculous. When, if you have like a jumbo loan or a big more, a big mortgage on, you know, an expensive property, all of a sudden you've gone from one, 2%, you know, your mortgage is like four or five times more expensive. It's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, I agree. I think commercial real estate, the office buildings are going to be, uh, I mean, they already are starting to see a little bit of uh, unique times and especially some of your buddies there with some deep pockets in, in New York, right? A lot of those residential, excuse me, commercial type buildings that are for the first time in decades legally able to be rezoned as residential. I think that's exactly they're going to have to rezone them to be residential. What you're saying, you hit it head on. You know, I have friends in New York. They've owned an asset for probably 30 years, 40 years in the family, you know, big commercial property, triple A tenants, you know, 
big restaurant group that you'll know, you know, I, I don't want to mention it because then it'll be obvious, but really well-known, like top of the top restaurant, global restaurant group in, in their ground floor space for years. And, you know, the building went from 95% occupancy to like 50. No one wants to rent office space. No one's renewing. The banks put pressure. Loans came up for renewal. They don't want to foreclose on the client because the client has like 10 other buildings with the bank. So it's bad business. And, you know, they all went, I can go on about four or five of the developers. And, you know, this is one of the top developers in New York. They went and they, exactly like you said, they said, look, we're going to have to hand the keys back and it's going to be a disaster unless you rezone this for either hotel or for condominium use. And so they're, they're basically turning the, they're basically forcing other tenants out and they're turning it into a prime hotel slash residence. Like, you know, all these projects now have a hotel attached for like a management of it. And it's going to basically be rental, you know, part rental, part owner occupied, part hotel with, you know, restaurant at the bottom and everything, because that's the only way anyone can survive in, you know, prop in like prime Manhattan real estate today. It's a, it's a disaster. Yeah. And to answer your question on what's going on here in Columbus, uh, it's kind of the obvious, but, uh, I'm very, very bullish on Columbus the next, I mean, right now, I mean, right now till the next 10 years, I think that central Ohio, in my personal opinion, obviously I'm invested here. Obviously my pride and ego is here as well. So I'm aware of that, but I think that central Ohio will be the best real estate market over the next 10 years. And the reasoning why is just the three main factors, right? As far as growth, population growth, income growth, uh, and job growth, right? So really when it comes to Ohio, there's a lot of people that live here, they come and go, but at the end of the day, it's consistent, right? With the university, with- It's affordable too, if you think about it. If you compare, people are making the same amount, let's be realistic today. People are making pretty much the same income, whether you're in Columbus, LA, New York, or Miami, and your cost, the percentage of your of your income that's going towards housing is substantially lower. And, you know, I grew up in Toronto in Canada, and, you know, you could still buy, you can buy in like the Shangri-La downtown Toronto one-bedroom condo for a million two Canadian, which is like, 800, 900,000 US with a portered building. That same apartment in London would cost you 5 million in New York, in Miami would cost you three or four. LA also probably three or four. I'm sure Columbus, it would probably be eight, 900,000, like in Toronto, similar prices. And that's something that people can afford, you know, and, and still have a good life. And if people are working, you know, I'd rather live in Columbus, do my job, you know, Monday to Friday. And if I want to get out, I'll just jump on a plane and, you know, go to Miami for a weekend or LA or New York and then come back home to peace and quiet. It's, there's no difference anymore. People don't need to be in that urban, you know, this, these cities are, have a lot more growth potential, like Nashville. You know, I saw, I saw the writing on the wall at Nashville. Nashville is a very similar type of city. I'd say to Columbus in size and in, in demographics. And, and I think that, you know, they've taken off because of that as well. Lots of young, very young population. Yeah. Ton, ton of, uh, tax benefits from my understanding as well in Tennessee and Nashville. I think there's no, is there no income tax? In Tennessee? No, but I know a lot of businesses. It's become a big hub for like med tech and health tech. I did a, I did a deal with Vanderbilt there a number of years ago, a, a biotech deal, and they have huge benefits there for operating there. And you know, you have like four or five universities there, a great population, a lot of talent. Yeah. And I want to kind of dive into your track record as well, Ron. We kind of dove right in conversation, but uh, with Columbus, uh, you have uh, the the Intel project coming here, the $20 million project, you have the data centers, Meta, you know, Facebook, you have Amazon that just bought hundreds of acres. So that's what we're seeing in central Ohio. We're seeing a lot of those, uh, the chips, right? The technology and the chips and 
uh, the data centers just flooding in. Again, similar to other markets that we saw explode with Amazon warehouses, et cetera. But there are a lot of roads that link back to Central Isle, insurance companies, politicians, um, a lot going on here. But like you said, final thing I'll say on it is the affordability, right? You know, they say rule of thumb is you want to spend, you know, 33% or less of your household income on housing expense. And we're seeing a lot of markets where people across the United States and obviously globally as well, they're spending upwards of 50% or more of their growth of their household incomes. Someone's making, you know, 20 grand a month, they're spending, you know, upwards of 10 plus thousand a month on rent and or mortgages or housing expense, whereas exactly. Columbus, we're still significantly below that. So room for growth. But yeah, let's talk about your track record, Ron. I know that you're, you're a super connected guy. That's how we got connected is through uh, a few of our mutual friends that are doing some awesome things in business, awesome things in life. But you've been a VC, a venture capitalist for 20 years, from my understanding. And I want to just kind of get your background, your experience, and really just opportunities that you see on the horizon. For those that don't know what a venture capitalist is, if you could explain that like we're a a two-year-old and then uh, what you've learned in your journey over that 20 years, I'm sure there's a lot that you can unpack. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, so I started out as an entrepreneur. I've been, you know, I set up my own businesses and I've I've been at an early stage startup guy for literally close to 25 years now. Started in the tech space. Um, After that, you know, took public a company in the tech space, you know, when I was in my 20s and did really well with that company. And then the tech market blew up and my partner and I were, you know, well capitalized. We were in a good position. Market factors were changing. And I think my real skill is that I've been able to adapt myself to changing market conditions. So, you know, I studied accounting and finance. I've got an MBA from Cambridge as well. And, but I'm really like a jack of all trade, master of nothing. And so opportunity came knocking on my door in the oil and gas space. And, you know, really the light bulb went on in my head and I, and I stuck with the oil and gas, you know, early stage growth companies that basically put together oil and gas companies all over the U S and all over South America and Africa for close to 10 years. And it became, you know, we were consistently hitting singles and doubles every year, you know, making really good money. All of our deals were working out. Some of them, some of them we hit oil and they worked out. Some of them we hit dry holes, but you know, we drilled and we tried to make these deals work out. And, you know, if you do it just by Murphy's law and, you know, and, and, uh, and the numbers, if, if you do 20, 30, 40 deals, you're bound to have a couple, you know, big exits. And, you know, we got very lucky. We had a, a, a concession in, uh, in Africa and Kenya, and we created this small startup. My partner and I invested money in it. We also raised money from some very serious investors and the company was called uh, Turkana Energy. 2009 at the, in 2008, during the crisis, we were supposed to go public financial crisis came along. Our bankers basically canceled our IPO. We kept the company going for a year with our own capital. And, you know, that money felt like as you probably, I mean, you're, you're, you're too young to, to probably remember the financial crisis, but it was, less, it was a disaster. I mean, just terrible, you know, 15 years ago. And, and so we kept the deal going and the tail end of the financial crisis, July, 2009, we merged the company. There was a company traded already on the stock market. No one was going to take us public in 2009. It was just at the tail end of the crisis. We merged our company with a company called Africa Oil. They had gone from a billion to 200 million in the financial crisis. They dropped 80%, but they had cash in the bank. And the entrepreneur behind it was 
you know, he's passed away recently, about a year ago, but the entrepreneur, uh, Lucas Landin, he was behind the company. He's just a legend in the, uh, oil, in the resource space, oil and gas and mining. And so we merged with them, did a fundraising. They drilled on our block exactly where we said to drill and they had a massive discovery. You know, two years later, the company went from a little over 200 million to at its peak three and a half billion market cap it was a huge win. Uh, I checked out of Canada, came for context and like a, over a 5x growth, right? For oh, people. I mean, like 20x growth, you know, more. It was a huge win for all of our investors. I mean, we 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 raise money at like anywhere from like 8 million to, to 15 million valuation. And our investors' share base in that company went, you know, came out day one at the 16 million last round and grew. If you do a percentage of numbers, you know, if they held on to it right to the end, over 200 million. I mean, it was a massive... It was like probably, you know, could it be like 18x, 20, close to 20x? It was a big win. And so for everyone, all investors, my partner and I as well. And then I left Canada for tax reasons, came to the UK and didn't know what to do with the second phase of my life. And I decided I was going to go back to school and be an academic. So I went to Cambridge, did an MBA. I was going to start a doctorate. And I realized uh, very quickly that I wasn't interested in teaching and lecturing for the next 20, 30 years of my life. And I was introduced to some entrepreneurs in the university ecosystem to mentor them. And, you know, and I'd always done my own deals. I'd not really mentored and worked with other people helping them. And, you know, these two, these two PhDs, you know, had this amazing mentech deal. They asked me to, to help raise them, you know, 150 grand or invest in their company. And, you know, I basically said, look, you're going to run out of money in a month with 150 grand. You know, that's not really going to help you. And so my uh, friends and I put a million dollars in the company. And we helped the company go public in Canada. You know, and since then they've raised like $20 million plus and it's done quite well. And, and then the light bulb went on in my head. Here was an opportunity. So big problem with university spin out companies. So I sort of built a niche building these intellectual property-based university spin out companies. And the big problem with these academics or scientists or graduate students is they got a grant, they started the business in the university, they were bootstrapping. And then they did a deal with a venture capitalist room. And so a VC, you asked me to explain, a VC is basically uh, a firm or an individual or a group of individuals or a partnership that invests and backs early stage startups. And it could be that they invest in the anywhere from an angel round, a seed round, then they do what's called a series A, a series B, a series C. They're all just terms and smoke screens for your first money in, your second money in, your third money in, your fourth money, your fifth. They like to keep the company private as long as possible because every time the valuation goes up, they book it in their fund as a huge win for them and an increase so they can go and raise more capital for another fund. And then they hope that a deal is either sold privately in a big exit to another massive public company like a Google or a Facebook, a Meta or, a, or an Amazon or whoever, or they take it public on NASDAQ or New York at a huge valuation. And, you know, for every one massive success story for these venture capitalists, they can write off, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 losses because, you know, they, they're, they're looking for the 100x, you know, 200. They're looking for the big ones. And there's some well-known names like Anderson Horowitz, Excel Partners, you know, <clears throat> the typical ones, Index Ventures. And so a lot of those work in a very systematic process. And so the problem with these deals and these entrepreneurs from the university is it, very, it constricted them. So they would do deals with venture capital funds. Everything would be based on progress. Their scientific freedom would be choked. They would be thrown in with, you know, 
independent boards, mentors, people that wouldn't really understand their business. And they would butt heads. And most of these deals would blow up or the scientists would just leave the company because there was a conflict and go back to academia. So they had that security blanket of a professorship or being a lecturer at a university to fall back on. And a lot of the time they took that security blanket and left. And so we found a really good business model. We said, let's work with these founders, let them control the deal, have total scientific freedom. You know, we'll do, we'll turn the model upside down where they're in control. We're a minority shareholder, but we'll provide all the backend services that they, they're lacking. They need a CFO, they need a COO, they need independent directors, they need good lawyers, good auditors, good accountants. Let's bring a team, but they make the decisions. They're the CEO, they're the chairman, they're the chief scientific officer. We're here to support you. And you know, in the past 13, 14 years, I've done over 20 deals like that. Big universe. I've never done one in Ohio, but I've done like with Oxford, Cambridge, Imperial. I've done with Harvard. I've done with Cornell. I've done with McGill. I've done with... Um, with Vanderbilt in Nashville, I've done loads of these deals, USC, and you know, all over the world, in Israel too, in in uh, Portugal, and so they all have a very common common theme, you know, and that's there's a scientist or an inventor, they've come up with some either a cure for a disease, a technology for, for you know a medical device or diagnostic or some sort of software or SaaS or or automation that can help make something easier or operate better, and. But they need money, you know, they've either raised a little bit of money from friends and family, they had a grant maybe given to them for research, but they've exhausted all avenues of financing and they don't have the experience to take it forward. So so I built a niche doing that. And really at the end of the day, I'm doing the exact same thing that I was doing when I was my own entrepreneur. But instead of my partners and I being bigger shareholders, we've now, you know, we're we're minority shareholders, but we're dealing in bigger deals and more interesting projects that are actually, you know, Instead of us digging, digging in the ground for oil or looking for gold or, or copper, we're, you know, helping find, you know, solutions to problems and, and working with, you know, world-class academics. And, you know, it's been an interesting ride and, you know, and I enjoy it and it's brought me to a lot of other places. And which, which project would you say has been most interesting and intriguing to you throughout the years going from oil and gas to now working with the most prestigious universities, what would you say has been most exciting, most intriguing, most interesting uh, right now and or on the horizon that you guys are working on? I think they're all excited. It's, it's like asking someone, which of your children do you love the most? You know, I'm almost like, I feel like I'm, I'm like a parent with the founders and CEOs. And so I have many children and, they, and they're all doing different things and they all have different skill sets. And so I have, you know, one project that we've done recently, which is amazing. It's a, it's a fintech. It's a banking platform for justice impacted people. Very interesting. It's an amazing founder. You know, he was in jail for over 10 years. You know, it was a drug dealer and made mistakes and came out of prison, turned his life around, reached out to Ben Horowitz from Anderson Horowitz to mentor him, got him a job working in Silicon Valley for a tech startup did really well in sales, decided to set up his own business, received a grant from Amazon for black founders and launched the business. And, you know, my partner and I were introduced to him and, you know, they're basically offering people that are, you know, there's something like 7 million justice impacted people in America with a criminal record. And they're almost treated like second and third class citizens when they go to like big banks. And they don't want to feel that way. They want to feel like, you know, we're not Yes, we've made mistakes, but we're also restarting our life. So these guys are opening bank accounts and issuing debit cards to them and helping them 
turn their life around and rebuild their credit. And so that that's a really, it's a social impact project that we're working on. It's really interesting. Another really good one we're, work, we're doing is it's a company that- What's the name making, of that one? That company is called Solvent. Solvent, okay. Yeah, S-O-L-V-N-T, Solvent. It's great. And I'll, I'll introduce you if you want to the CEO and founder. He's a, a very interesting character. He's he's really, really a, uh, a great guy and he speaks really well. He would be a good guy to be on your show. He's, he's amazing. He travels around the U.S. and he were, he's, he's very inv- quite involved in a lot of you know reform projects as well. And then another one that we have, which is an amazing one as well, is it's an electric vehicle. So a lot of people, they're doing EV companies. They're trying to build a car or a truck and they're trying to do you know compete with Tesla. These guys have created engines and batteries and, and drive. Tra- they've created the engine and the battery to convert cars. So they're focused on you know Land Rovers, they're focused on old Range Rovers, classics, mainly Land Rovers, Range Rovers, Jaguars, Porsches. And so they're focused on these cool classic cars. They're dealing with the upper end of the market of collectors that, you know, don't want to drive their kids to school or drive on the weekend in, you know, a classic 1960s, 70s Porsche or a 1960s Jaguar, which is, you know, spewing out diesel and fumes and they convert them to electric. They've done like 30 projects. They have a factory where they basically create the kit and everything, and they work with installers. And it's an amazing project. It's, they're about to be profiled on Discovery Channel. They've also just they're working on a you know defense co- really interesting uh, military project, which you know I can't really speak about. But they're looking to convert thousands of military vehicles into hybrid, where they can flip a switch and they can be electric in stealth mode. And when they run out of power, they can switch back and, and operate on diesel. Because, you know, big problem with a lot of with in military, not just with England, but with America is a lot of, they have a lot of casualties on delivering fuel. I didn't realize how, and for every liter of fuel that gets delivered, it, it takes them five or six liters to deliver that one liter of fuel. And then they get hijacked and killed. And there's a lot of civilian casualties that are contractors. So it's more, it's not even for, you know, to be energy efficient and to be environmentally correct. It's also a safety uh, factor and a stealth factor. So very interesting company as well. We've got a great, you know, plant-based food company that a lot of people are trying to tackle selling in supermarkets, selling in Amazon, selling in Whole Foods, selling online. This company does a lot of um, white labeling for, uh, for food companies and caterers. So let's say like you work for a company like Google or, or Meta, and you're a vegan and you want to have healthy sandwich options there, there's not many options. So there's, and, you know, and these big catering companies that are winning these contracts, they don't have options of, you know, plant-based deli meats and other stuff. So we're working with a really interesting company. They were on Shark Tank. Uh, Mark Cuban invested in the company too. So it's got a great shareholder base. We've come in to sort of take them to the next level and very interesting. And then, so we have like a whole mixture. We have a great, uh, uh, drink spread. So you can see we're not really sector focused. Everything we do, Tyler's exactly the same. We're helping advise and mentor the founders. We're helping them raise capital and prepare for ultimately for, for a list, an IPO one day or going public or a trade sale or a merger. But everything we do is the same. Just we've moved around between sectors, you know, and especially in even myself in this current climate. You know, whereas I was very active for 10 years in like biotech, medtech, intellectual property deals, those deals take years for cash flow and revenue to come. And even like patents too, right? Like even the- You've got to go through phase one, phase two, phase three, the FDA, everything, Europe first. So, you know, 
your only buyer is big pharma, really, at the end of the day. And, you know, yes, there's a lot of big pharma companies today, and they're always looking for interesting therapeutics to buy, but it's still your universe of a buyer is maybe 50, 60 companies, maybe 100 max, okay, around the world, but they all have different requirements. Whereas, you know, the electric vehicle one, if you make engines and drivetrains for 20, 30 types of cars, and you've got 1,000, 2,000 installers around the world, those are all your clients. And all you need is a guy like you or me that's making good money, has you know a fancy car, and he wants to drive around in a cool-looking electric car. We don't want to drive a Tesla like everyone's driving, but it would be cool if, if we could have a, a Porsche, you know, a classic Porsche or classic Jaguar with an electric uh, engine in there. So there's hundreds of thousands of people like you and me out there that are our ultimate buyers. And so that's what's great about that. And the plant-based food, where there's millions of people and catering companies and you know, the, the solvent, for example, the fintech one is millions of people, 700,000 people are coming out of prison every year. Those are all potential clients. That's a revolving door. So yeah, the, fin, the fintech one is, is crucial for what you said in terms of the banking industry, right? There's a company called Carrot with a, a K, K-A-R-A-T. That's a credit card company. And there's, you know, companies getting more attention every day. That's just the first one that can, came to mind when you had mentioned solvent, which is a credit card designed for entrepreneurs that may not have the financials to share, right? Like that's why yeah. the United States is so powerful is our credit system, the banking system. But if people that are creating jobs that are stimulating the economy, aka entrepreneurs and self-employed people or people that potentially less fortunate or, or you know, coming from that comeback story, coming out of prison or jail, whatever is, you know, you need something to to spark you up, which is having good credit, which is having access to capital, which is having the ability to get some cash flow going. So really love what you guys are doing there. Uh, my concern on the the EV side, uh, going green and the energy is, Ron, what if they click a button and uh, our cars, cars stop working? What if the grid, the three grids in the United States go out? Do you have any concern around that based on research and things that you guys have done um, in scaling those ventures? I mean, not really, you know, I think that the problem is to, you know, everyone's turning to electric vehicles now. And if, you know, if you told me 10 years ago, Mercedes would have every, you know, I saw the other day an S-Class Maybach electric and I was like, I was shocked. That's like a $200,000 car now. You know, they're, they're talking about making a G-Wagon, electric G-Wagon as well now next year. It's just- gardens of production on them. It's ridiculous, you know, and I mean, every BMW, there's a, my neighbor's got a seven series with a chauffeur, you know, a driver who drives around me because you can't park anywhere here in London. And it's like Manhattan and it's an, it's an electric car and it's beautiful inside. It's, you know, all amazing. And, and these, every type of fancy car is coming out now in electric. Ferrari's talking about it. Lotus has just been revamped all electric. So, so I think the investment is so big. People fail to realize it's not really environmentally friendly because the amount of coal it takes, the amount of natural gas it takes to charge these batteries. People are, you know, running around saying stop oil. You know, we've got this whole movement in the UK about stopping oil and stopping oil drilling and production. And, you know, they want all these electric cars, electric buses and hydrogen and all this. But, you know, that power still has to come from somewhere. It's got to come from coal. It's got to come from natural gas. That's, you know, there's no difference there. And so, and mining for lithium, correct? Like the batteries? Or lithium. I mean, there's a huge shortage around the world for not even just lithium, but for also all the chips and the ability to convert that to batteries. Making batteries is the, the problem is you could find the lithium in the States and in Argentina and all these places and in China, but 
The problem is making batteries. There's only so many batteries that can be made. And it's, you know, and it's getting more and more expensive. You know, we, in our battery packs, we have something like, you know, 300 batteries in this, in this pack. I mean, it's ridiculous. And, and the costs just keep going up and up. China's not stupid. As America puts more pressure on them, they're just not going to let product leave their country. 100%. So it's going to become, like you said in the beginning, there's a lot of, you know, geopolitical forces at play here, you know, and we might even be in a World War III in the Middle East, which is just going to be, you know, insane what that's going to do to cost of energy. I mean, look at shipping already. I read an article today because of all these attacks by the Houthis on, you know, cargo ships and transport ships in, in uh, the Middle East, insurance is up this month 300%. I mean, it's ridiculous. With big companies, like we're talking like Marsh and Lloyd's, like the big ones, 300% is more expensive. That cost is going to get put onto, you know, people that are shipping goods and it's going to be a massive, you know, chain effect. So it's an interesting world we live in right now. That's uh, one of the major reasons why I'm biased on Columbus, Ohio, is we have, uh, you know, headquarters for some of the largest insurance companies in the world. And at the end of the day, uh, we can go down some conspiracy rabbit holes, but I'll avoid those the best I can. Uh, but, you know, insurance companies to an extent have their hands in everything, right? So yes. when I've seen, even on the real estate side, like some policies not get renewed and my brokers had to, you know, go back and try to negotiate with them or we tried to find other policies, right? That was staggering to start seeing those conversations unfold the last 12 months. And then we talk about the geopolitical, the macro level things as far as uh, war and uh, you know, it's just that concept of following the money, right? Like what are the, the insurance companies doing? What are roadblocks they're running into? What are the largest institutional investors doing versus what they're saying, right? But I'm curious on your take with your experience for decades now, uh, seeing the financial system change from 2008 to 2010, right? The banking collapse, um, you're in, you're in Europe now you're traveling around, you're working with companies globally, like what's going on? And are you worried about a global depression? Are you worried about the United States recession? Are we in one now? They just announced six interest rate cuts coming in 2024. And usually that's an immediate indicator that we are in a recession and or going into one based on historical data. Uh, so that's what I'm keeping my eye on is what in the world's going on, Ron, and how can people prepare themselves if it's not too late? I mean, the market is just shocking and surprising me. And I, you know, and I had Thanksgiving dinner at a friend of mine who's a massive, you know, hedge fund manager, big hedge fund manager, mainly 90, probably 90% U.S. stocks. And, you know, he's got, his wife's American and he spends a lot of the whole summer in the U.S. And, you know, we talked about it and the market's super strong. I think there's been a shift. So if you ask me about 10 years ago, you wouldn't, you were only seeing IPOs that were huge, like companies, like the metas of the world, like billion dollar IPOs or 500 million IPOs or 300 million. There were no small IPOs. And then what? there was a funny shift. 2018, about five, six years ago, the small IPO started reappearing. You saw a reemergence of smaller banks. They weren't, you know, you had this myth market and small market of underwriters and investment bankers, and they were taking public companies with, you know, 10, $20 million IPOs, small IPOs. They were going public on NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange and Amex. And then you saw the emergence of the SPAC, you know, whereas there were like, and I've done two SPAC deals and, you know, SPACs and many of these SPACs don't de-SPAC. The, de the term de-SPAC is when you complete the, the SPAC and the deal closes. So the year that I did, I did a SPAC deal in 2019 and the year that we did our SPAC deal, there was 
34 SPACs went public. And then it jumped to like 250 and then 600. So there's hundreds of these SPACs that have raised so much capital. There's no risk to this capital because if the deal doesn't consummate or close, they just give the money back. It's sitting in treasury bills. And so what you've can seen you explain, is- Can you explain briefly what a SPAC is for those that may not know? A SPAC is a special purpose acquisition corporation. It's a private company that it's an investment bank. It could be like Citibank. It could be JP Morgan. It could be Lehman, Goldman. It could even be a smaller one like uh, E.F. Hutton, okay, which is like a mid-sized one. They will go to a bunch of hedge funds and, and, and family offices and they'll raise maybe anywhere from 50 million to 100 million up to like a billion- and they'll raise money from investors and the investors will get a share. Usually it's a unit. You get a share at $10 and you get um, a uh, warrant at $11.50. That's the usual structure. And the founders who create the SPAC, the promoters of the SPAC, they usually get 20 to 30% of the company in, and they pay almost nothing for it. But their stock's locked up and they don't even get their stock until a deal closes. So they now go and look for a deal. A perfect example is Nikola. Nikola was a SPAC deal, okay? DraftKings were SPAC deals. So DraftKings or Nikola went into the SPAC. Even Trump, remember DWAC, Trump Digital Acquisitions, that was a SPAC deal. Trump's truth, you remember. So yep. the SPAC was at 10. Trump announced the deal he's doing with the SPAC. It jumped up to like 100 and some 150, went bananas. People made 15 times their money. And so, but the deal, it took ages to close. So usually you have two years to close the deal. And the people can still vote for the deal to close, but redeem their money and take it back and they get to keep the war. So these SPACs, you had hundreds of SPACs with billions of dollars of investors capital sitting on the sidelines and they were looking for deals. And some of the deals they did were subpar deals. Like, you know, Nikola looked like an amazing deal and it probably is an amazing deal still, you know, and, but maybe the valuation was too high. You had some other companies, lots of them went public too high. We did a deal you know, that was valued at price X and it, and it fell down day one because people, the market thought it was too expensive, but it came back up and went back down. And so I think that between smaller IPOs, SPACs, there was this demand for smaller IPOs. The market went bananas, low hundreds of companies went public, and then the market just dried out and it sucked up the liquidity. And I think that's what's created a lot of these problems the past couple year or two, let's say, of you know interest rates, real estate recession, because that liquidity just dried up, and then everyone thought for sure a big recession is going to come. But you know it's different today than it was in two thousand eight, because in two thousand eight people were way over leveraged, you know, and everyone was over leveraged. No one expected it to be so bad. But today, you you know, forget people in their 20s and 30s, you've got people like my age, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, people now retiring who lived through the financial crisis and had their, you know, their ass handed to them. All of a sudden, they're in a position where they're like, hold on, I, I kept money on the sidelines for another, you know, rainy day. And so the situation is not so bad for them because maybe they're not going to make, you know, they sold their second or third or fourth home because they're now, there's Airbnb and One Fine Stay and all these places you can go to. There's hotels every quarter, everywhere you go, there's a hotel or a resort popping up. You know, when I was your age, there was two or three Mandarins. Now there's like hundred Mandarins, you know, going, staying in a Mandarins or a Four Seasons today is not like it was 20 years ago. And it was so, so luxurious, you know? So, so I think the world was better prepared for what's happening now. And all of a sudden there's been a paradigm shift where you're seeing a lot of smaller companies go public again. 
And, you know, a perfect example of how I know the market's strongest, I'm seeing a lot of Asian IPOs, Chinese IPOs pop back in the US. And that's an indicator that the market can be that bad if the mar- if people are investing in Chinese IPOs again. There's got to be a pool. And, and the younger generation that didn't go through the crisis, like yourself, you don't have that fear factor that people my age have that, you know, lost 80% or 50% or of their wealth in the markets or their, their home was taken away because they got foreclosed. You're, you're thinking, okay, I want to make, I've made a lot of money now. I just had an exit. I'm going to throw my money in the markets. I want to make money fast as well. So I think that, I don't know how bad it's going to be. I think the U.S. is very strong. I think the economy is super strong. I think the U.S. is being thrown off a little bit by Ukraine and what's going on in, in Israel because they're having to fund a lot of these factors. I think perfect example is the current election situation where, you know, the Democrats can find a real, a real candidate. I mean, it's ridiculous. Whereas the Republicans have too many good candidates, you know, between Trump, as much as people, you know, love or hate the guy, you know, he was president during an amazing growth period in America, but you've got DeSantis, who's a fabulous candidate as well. And Nikki Haley as well. So you've got, you know, he's got some nice high heels too. Yeah, but you know, you've got like three good candidates in the Republican side. They're all like, if you throw a dart, all three of them are, are could be a, a great president, whether it's Trump, DeSantis, or Haley, whereas in the Democrats, who do you have? You know, it's almost like you got to go over Biden because there's no one else. You know, Camilla Harris, maybe, but even even her, you know, if I had to choose between her or Nikki Haley, I'd probably choose Nikki Haley over her. She's at least done a great job, you know, in South Carolina. And she's she stands up for what she believes in. So it's a tough one. So I think the U.S. is in a very strong position. The U.K. is a disaster. I mean, the situation here in the U.K., is a shit show. The economy's terrible. No small companies want to go public on the stock market here. It's easier to go public in America than it is in London. So all the UK companies are are going to the US. You know, it's the world today is so small. Like look at us. I'm in London. You're you're in Columbus, Ohio. We're it, we're speaking like we're next door to each other. That wouldn't have been possible three four years ago before COVID. And so people can be in London and do business trading in NASDAQ and dealing with people in seven, eight countries in one day. So it doesn't matter. So I think the UK is sort of, you know, this whole Brexit just destroyed the economy here. And, you know, there's been so much immigration here and not good immigration. That's positive, negative immigration. I mean, you turn the news on and see what's going on here. It's a disaster, this country. Why do you live there? I married a Brit. You know, my wife's British. My kids go to school. I ask myself that question all the time. You know, you ask me, you ask me a very good question. And I asked this morning, I asked my wife that same question when we're watching the news and we're seeing these protests going on everywhere. You know, it's a disaster. Like, look, you know, I'm Jewish and I grew up in Canada, never experienced anti-Semitism my whole life you know, lived in Israel, spent loads of time in the States. I know Columbus is a huge Jewish population. You have some of the biggest guys. You have Schottensteins, you have uh, Wexner. I have got all the, you know, two of the biggest Jewish families come from Columbus. And it's a huge community there. I know very powerful and also integrated well with everyone. And they're big philanthropists for not just Jewish people, but for non-Jewish people as well. And it's the same in Canada where I grew up, you know, and the UK used to be like that. But today, you know, Europe is being taken over now. It's, it's anti, you know, you have to hide your religion, even if not just Jewish, but whether you're Christian or, I mean, it's ridiculous. And so I think it's asked that question all the time, but you know, my kids are in school and, you know, I, I, you know, bite the bullet and, and, and suck up my pride for my kids that, you know, have another few years of school. But, you know, ask me that question in a few years when my kids are in university, 
you know, whether they're in uni in the States or in Canada, would I be here? Probably not. I, I would pack up right immediately. I would move to the States in two minutes if my, if my kids were a bit older or they were younger, because the U.S. is probably, you know, no matter how you look at it, it's probably the best place. Not only is it the best place to be Jewish today, but it's one of the safest countries to live in. And, you know, you have freedom there, freedom of speech, freedom to operate. It's great for business. And, you know, it's easy to move around. So it's a tough one. Blink twice if you need us to come save you. If you, uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> we're hoping Trump comes and saves us. If not Trump, someone else for hoping. Yeah. You made, you made a comment about, uh, being Jewish and, you know, some wealthy and, uh, very impressive last names here in central Ohio, the Schottensteins. Jewish and, families. Do you know the Schottensteins? I have friends that are very close to them that know them and they speak very highly of the family. They say that they're, they're a great family, very reputable. They also know uh, Wexer as well that, you know, behind where is it Gap and all these big brands and Victoria's Secrets and they speak very highly of him as well. And so, and I know it's a great community, right? The community there, you know, my friends have been there. They've done, you know, high hol Jewish holidays there and they've spent time in Columbus and they speak very highly of, uh, of the city and of, you know, it's one of the great cities in America to be Jewish, you know, like being in Miami. Yeah. And, uh, my buddy, Brett Kaufman as well. He's, he, um, he's crushing in real estate. I'm, I'm looking to my right because it overlooks from my condo here. Uh, he basically owns like this side of the city at this point, uh, some massive development. So much respect to, to Brett recording a show at them. I would go live at some point, but uh, yeah, as, as far as that topic though, I like to get a little controversial, Ron, uh, going down rabbit holes and, you know, pissing some people off on some comments, but Hey, we're just having some fun, man. That's all we're doing. We're just having some fun and try to inform people and get them to come to their own conclusions and, and work hard and enjoy life. But when it comes to being Jewish, you said that you never really had any like roadblocks or really, uh, any, that, that was never really negative for you kind of growing up, right? And, and how I do you know Toronto, you never had any problems in Toronto is a huge Jewish population. It was like three, 400,000 Jews when I was growing up there, it's still a big population. And, you know, it's a top 10 North American city for Jewish population. If not, probably even top five, it must be. And I never encountered anti-Semitism once there, you know, there was a strong, powerful community. And I went to public state school as well for high school. That was maybe, you know, 30, 40% Jewish because it was in a semi-Jewish neighborhood as well. But you know, I went to school with, with Italians, with Muslims, and I have a lot of friends that are, you know, Muslim too here in the UK. And, and I think it's just, you know, what's happened is, is that there's just been this massive shift of, you know, we're being blamed for everything, for UFOs, every problem possible in the world now is, you know, our fault. It's ridiculous. Honestly, it's like a, a level I've never seen, you know, that going on. Have you gone down the rabbit holes of, uh, if you Google like executives for the largest companies in the world or government officials and 80% of them are, are Jewish. Do you think that's why people are, are upset that they think that like some Kanye West comments that Jewish people are running the world and controlling everything through law and contract and, and that's not even true. If you do the numbers and look at it, that's not even true. If you look at those percentages and numbers, it, those those are like incorrect facts. I mean, there's, you look at the Forbes list of billionaires in Canada, we, we don't control, we're not the biggest percentage of that, but you know, yes, I think Jewish families were, you know, because we're 
my, we, were, we grew up as minorities and we grew up, family values were important and education was important. You know, my parents were immigrants to Canada. They came from, you know, Eastern, my father, Eastern Europe, Eastern Europe via Israel to Canada in his twenties. My mom came via Belgium to New York, then to, to Canada. And everything was important, you know, it was important for you. And I grew up middle class. I was not rich. I don't live, my parents never lived the life that I live now and my kids are living, but you know, everything was about education. It was about school, university. It was, you need to get an education. My parents didn't even care what I studied, just as long as I went and got an education. And that's what mattered. And, you know, and you worked hard and you had a family to rely on. So I think family values and so, and, you know, uh, social values and education is very important. And I think a big factor is, and this is really important, you know, how much money do Jewish people give back, not only to their own, you know, their own religion and their own community, but how much do we give to other communities as well? And to give back to society, we donate hospitals, museums, you name it, loads of stuff. Whereas, you know, you look at some of these other, I mean, how many millions, billions Muslims are there in the world? Why are they not donating? Why don't you see all these wings and hospitals and universities and schools with Muslim names everywhere? Why don't you see in Harvard, you know, all these names, why are there not 10 libraries and halls donated by billionaire, you know, Muslim families or, you know, sovereign wealth funds from the Gulf that are sending their kids to study there, but you see it from people in my religion and my faith, you know, it's ridiculous. What's going on in Israel? Do you think that we're in like some biblical times and World War III is unfolding if it hasn't already? I think it has to happen. I think the mistake that's been made is that the level of, you know, fero ferociousness and disgusting level that, you know, Hamas went to, if they were smart, you know, they would have, they would have, you know, they, they took it to such a level that how can you negotiate peace with someone like that? You know, where you have the leaders of, of, uh, of Hamas sitting in Qatar with protection of, you know, a sovereign wealth fund where they're, they're letting their people just die to such a level. I mean, it's ridiculous. And then you have people from Yemen, the Houthis attacking, you know, America attacking Israeli owned businesses. You know, what do they think? You know, and Iran supporting Hezbollah in Lebanon, supporting Hamas in, in there, supporting the Houthis in Yemen. I mean, you're at Biden's just a joke. I mean, you know, if Trump was in there right now, it would be already World War Three. And maybe even if DeSantis was in there, it would have been World War III. And I think there's going to be a stance, whether it happens today, tomorrow, a month, or, or a year, you know, America can't just sit back and keep taking this, you know, this barrage of fire in, in the Middle East right now. And I think that we're at a level where peace is off the cards. I mean, I always said that, you know, we we're not going to see peace in, in my generation. Maybe I thought my kids would see peace, but now it's just, it's to the point of, just there's no return. It's unfortunate. Will any generation experience peace? Do you think mankind will ever reach a peace, uh, a point of peace? I think so. I think that, you know, the Palestinians were offered a number of times, you know, a two-state solution. They just don't want the two-state solution. You know, when, when you know, and, and I've seen some videos recently. What's the two-state uh, solution? The two-state solution was the Palestinians would be given a homeland. You know, Gaza Strip, the West Bank would be a Palestinian state, a sovereign nation. And, you know, they don't want that, you know, they want parts of, of, uh, parts of Israel that are, you know, the Jewish homeland that was controlled by Jews before the creation of Palestine and before a Palestinian state. And, you know, there's two sides of the argument, you know, we could spend hours here 
on discussing the Palestinian side and the Israeli side. And, you know, someone says to me, there's two sides to every story. Sometimes there's even three or four sides to every story. And I think there's 50 sides to this story. And I've studied international I'm, I'm relations. Ask, I'm asking you because uh, I think people, you know, when it comes to like politics, religion, and, and uh, especially when you start bringing up like uh, Jews and Muslim and et cetera, coming from a white male, uh, yes. for America like myself, it can be a quote unquote controversial conversation. But it's, it's like, not no, a Muslim argument. Don't look at it. Muslims and Palestinians are different. Okay. It's like saying you're an American, you're, you're an, you're a black in America or you're a black in Nigeria. You ask a rich black person in America, how was it growing up and becoming rich? They'll say, oh, I had, you know, racism my whole life. People always thought I had a chip on my shoulder. When I was at, you know, an Ivy League school or a second school or starting out in business, people always looked at me in a different way. Whereas you ask that same entrepreneur in Nigeria or in, you know, a country like that, that's 100% black, controlled by black people, they're going to say, my only problem was my own people, you know, having, you know, problems with me. Like white people are jealous of other white people or Jews are jealous of other Jews. So I think that Muslims, you know, Muslims in the Gulf or in, Lebanon or even in Jordan or in Egypt or in these countries, they're not, they're different. The Palestinians and them are different. You know, it's like, it's like Latinos and Mexicans. Do you know what I mean? It's like you go to someone in Colombia and say, Hey, you know, you Spanish speaking people. And they're like, Hey, I'm different than Mexicans. We're not trying to, to come to America. You know, I went to school at UCLA and I've got a business in Colombia. I didn't try and cross the border for a better life for my family. I already have a good life. So it's the same with with Muslims and Palestinians to explain it. And they don't want Palestinians. Look at Egypt. The Sinai Peninsula is like 90% vacant, you know, since Israel gave it back. Why doesn't Egypt give Palestinians part of that? And, you know, the world will finance it. You've got you've got trillions of dollars of capital in Saudi, the UAE, Qatar, Oman, all these countries. They, you're telling me they can't do, they can't collectively put together an aid package of 100, 200 billion to the Palestinians to build them, you know, an oasis. Look at Dubai. I remember going to Dubai in 2001, two. There was nothing there. There was one hotel and a desert. And you look at Dubai today. Look what they did with that that place. I mean, have you been to Dubai? No, but I have a family friend that was an architect out there. Um, if you look at pictures, if you look at a picture today, a satellite image today versus 20 years ago, how, why can't look even at Saudi Arabia, what they're doing, Qatar? Why can't they do that in a Palestinian state and collectively all the countries give them money, the world help them? I mean, it's ridiculous. So look what Israel did. I mean, we, we, our only luck was that we inherited the only piece of land in the Middle East at the time that had no oil on it, if you think about it. So we had to, we had to fend for ourselves and create science, technology, software, medicine. We, we had no choice, you know, to create this. We didn't even have water. We didn't even have water. We had to convert salt water from the ocean into drinking water because there was no other way to bring it. There's something to that though, right? It's like in business when there's no choice other than uh, to get the deal done, there's no choice, but to wake up and get shit done. Uh, that's usually how human beings I, learn is when there's no choice. And I pray that there's peace. Believe me, I wish. I have loads of friends here in London that are Palestinian. My neighbor, five houses down, is, you know, grew up in East Jerusalem, Palestinian. And he said the best thing that happened to him was that there was a conflict because he ended up getting a scholarship to University of America. And now he's the chief investment officer of one of the biggest investment, investment banks here in London. And he's living in, you know... 
a massive house here in Lebanon. But but he says he too wishes, and he has an Israeli passport. You know, that's how he travels around the world. So we all want peace. I think there's a small, you know, really small minority that's throwing oil on fire and creating this. And it's gotten to a point where, you know, it's like a volcano explosion. It's slowly, slowly erupting and it just exploded on October 7th. And I don't know what the point of return is. I really don't. Yeah. Do you think the point of return is going into World War Three and nukes? And, and uh, I mean, look, at the end of the day, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's arguably the most profitable business deal that any government can do, which is war, right? It gives them the opportunity to print more money, stimulate the economy, control, fear, all these different things, right? So do you think that this is a never-ending cycle with humanity? Uh, you mentioned that, sure, you think there can be a time where humans can can reach peace, but what is the the solution? Is it a nuclear bomb? Is it World War Three? Is it- I don't is know. It, I hope it's not a nuclear bomb. I hope it's not World War Three. but I mean, you know, Iran and Yemen and I mean, you know, Lebanon's being held hostage by Hezbollah and by Iran. They can really have no Syria just got let back into the Arab League, so they don't want to go against anyone. Jordan's sort of trying to be a peacemaker with Egypt because they border the Pal- Palestinian uh, Authority and also uh, Israel, and so they don't want war coming on their doorstep. So it's a really complicated uh, situation, and America's eating shit because they're just absorbing bombings and attacks on bases, and so I think it's. It's a perfect storm for for uh, another war, and you know I think it's going to be uh, it's not going to end well, no matter how it ends. So you know there's going to be a lot of casualties, and I don't think we've seen the end of it. You know, so I think we leave it at that. I don't know what else can be said about it. There is one more thing to say about it, which is I don't think that 20 year old TikTokers are ready to get drafted in the United States. I do think that, and I know I want to be. Uh, that's one thing I've reflected on, Ron, over the last year or so is the amount of respect to a whole different level to the military men and women specifically in america that have sacrificed their lives of course it's when they got drafted you're like holy cow my grandpa had to go get dropped off in the middle of the jungle in vietnam when he's 18 years old uh with no other option i'm like i was concerned about what youtube video i was going to watch no for sure Gives you a crazy perspective, which is so silly to say for maybe some people listening in, but I, I think it's a real conversation to have is like, wow, 10 yeah. years ago, could have been drafted in a war, dropped off fighting against somebody that I, I don't even have an opinion about or or any control about, right? No, so, of course. The, the reason why I wanted to go deep into that conversation is one, I think it's important. I think it's intriguing. I think it's, uh, you're, you seem very, very educated on that. Uh, that front, but also this dynamic of, do you think that we're going through a, a financial reset? Do you think that the, the new digital economy is transforming with uh, cryptocurrency? Do you think that the, the current financial system is going to be something of the past working with banks? And, and uh, what's your overall outlook over the next, let's say, 10 years with the financial system, how it operates now versus what it may look like in the future? I think it's, I think we've already seen a change. I, you know, I can't remember last time I went into a bank branch. Can you? I mean, everything's done today or even carry cash. You know, 80% of the businesses you go to here now, London, they won't take cash. One, they, they don't have to monitor their employees. They don't want to get robbed. And so everything's digital. You're paying with your phone. You're paying with your card. Cash is a thing of the past. If you want a big amount of cash, you have to call the bank up and pre-order it because they don't carry it anymore. And so I think we're at a point and, you know, cryptocurrencies, I think 
there was the shakeout of all these small little, you know, shitty currencies. So I think it's pretty much like cryptocurrencies become like US dollar, a British pound, euro. You've got like, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and you've got like two or three of them. And that's sort of the gold standard of cryptocurrency and all the other smaller coins. No one believes it and no one cares for no one's going to ever buy. And so there's only, like you're saying, an infinite supply of these other coins. So that's why I think the price has gone back up. And and I think, you know, we talked in the beginning where you said there's going to be a bit of a shakedown and maybe people want to take some liquidity. But I think that you're going to have a huge amount of people coming that were on the fence, naysayers also looking and coming into cryptocurrency. That might hold the price up. I don't know if it's going to go back up to like hundreds or this, but I think it's going to be Bitcoin, Ethereum are going to be steady currencies for people to hold like you hold, you know, the dollar and the euro and the yen and the pound. You know, I think that's going to be the, the, there'll be like a benchmark of, uh, of, uh, cryptocurrency. And so I think it's here to stay, you know, and a lot of businesses accept payment for it. And you can, you know, hold it in your account. My bank's here that I can hold cryptocurrency like I've hold, you know, dollars or pounds or euros. Yeah. I think the best way that I've put it in terms of simplicity for people is like you going to college, getting an education, buying a house, saving that work for decades. Right. I think that what we've seen now is you can go to college if you want, but you can learn everything that you want listening to podcast shows. Only the shows that Ron and I are on, that's what you're going to learn everything because obviously, Ron, you and I know everything, right? Yeah, uh, so Jack. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we know everything, but we try. Yeah, we do our best. Um, but, you know, in, in other words, like self-education, right? Specialized right. education as well in terms of like taking that education on YouTube and actually applying it. But in terms of like buying the house and saving money and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I think that's the modern day you buy Bitcoin. Yeah, right? exactly. hundred percent. You, you go from there. And just one quick one for you, Rod, is like, what's the number one tip that you would give for entrepreneurs, early stage startup people that are just in the trenches, right? Like if you could look back when you got started, like what's that one thing that you wish you would have known and or expanded on more? Uh, I would say don't, don't give up. Don't give up. You know, work seven days a week and work hard, hard work pays off better than luck. So, you know, always be there, always be available, grind, hustle, work hard. Don't be ashamed or shy to call people up. You want to speak to someone or meet someone, cold call them, reach out to them. Everything, you know, when I was starting a business, if you didn't have someone's phone number or their email address, there's no way for you to meet them or reach them. Now you can, you can direct message someone on Instagram, on on Twitter, on TikTok, on LinkedIn, you never had any of these tools and you can, you can find someone, you know, for, there's so many ways to reach them, go and reach these people and reach out. The worst thing is don't be afraid of rejection for, for if you hit 10 people and nine say no, you still have one yes, you know, and that's like a numbers game. It's all a numbers game. So keep going. And, you know, I've always been very hard worker. Like today I was up at six in the morning, you know, I've been, my first call was at seven. I've been working since seven in the morning, you know, it's now three, three in the afternoon. I'll be working till nine keep hustling, keep going. Hard work pays off in the end. You know, I, I think Gary Player said it the best. I don't know if you're, if you like golf or you play golf. Gary Player said, the more I practice, the better my luck gets. So if you practice more and you work hard, you know, you'll, you'll hit it. You'll get there eventually. When preparation meets hard work, that is when you'll be lucky, my friend. Ron, appreciate your time. We got to stay connected. And uh, yeah, thanks for all the insight. No, thanks thank for you. Allowing me to, to dive into some rabbit holes here for the audience. I'll send you all the footage. And for those that want to connect with you, all your contact info will be below in the description. Thank you so much.